Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Self-Development for Men, Part 2, originally produced and published by Matt Davis of the Steelyard Academy Podcast. We're so excited to share this episode with you, but before we do, we wanted to highlight a positive review recently left on Dr. Finlayson Fife's podcast archive. The Batman 3 says, Enlightening. This has been wonderful to listen to. I have learned to look hard at myself and what I am bringing to my marriage and how I could be doing better. I am learning how to handle my higher desire and help improve my marriage for both my wife and I. Dr. Finlayson Fife's ability to articulate has allowed me to see myself better and change. This is amazing. Thank you, B-Batman3. We are so grateful for every positive review that's left on Dr. Finlayson Fife's podcast. Positive reviews can help people find the podcast and help them improve their relationships with themselves and others. We encourage you to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you choose to listen to this podcast from. Thank you for all of your positive feedback, and we hope you enjoy this episode. So, I mean... Uh, somebody will have to comment on where this came from, but I read an article uh, maybe a couple years ago where, you know, they, they tested how happy people were in different professions. And the number one profession was zookeeper. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, terrible pay. I mean, you can imagine the, the disgusting things that they're dealing with on a daily basis. Sure. And it, I, I think it aligned with that was just what they wanted to do because there would be no other reason to do it than just loving to do it. Right. The, the, the pay's yeah. not there that, you know, it's, well, it's a challenging right. job, a lot of hours. I also wonder if it has something to do with yes, yes. And yes to everything you said. And also just being with the animals themselves and being with nature, because there is research that shows that people are happiness correlates with how much nature they are, uh, how much nature they have access to. And, you know, I, I grew up on 10 acres. We did not have a lot of money because there were eight children and one income. And and so, but I was often in the woods building forts, creating things, just walking around thinking. Yes. And I, I had such precious time because it was, and I remember sometimes just, it would snow. I live in Vermont. It would snow and I would just go out and lie down in the field and just look up at the sky and there was just like the muffled reality of any, you know, any, all of you who've done that know that experience. And which is very anchoring into your soul and into a kind of peace that's much harder to find in, in high production realities. And, you know, people who live in cities and so on, I think happiness tends to be much lower. So it's, uh, there's also that aspect of how much do we nurture our souls Right. I think that's so good because I, I, I've studied a lot on, you know, great leaders from the, you know, 17 and 1800s. And there was, there's kind of the underlying factor that they had a lot of, <laughs> for lack of a better term, social distance. Yeah. Um, they had a lot of quiet and, yeah. and they had a lot of, in, when I say darkness, I mean, they had the ability to, you know, when the sun went down, the sun went down and you go outside and you, you know, see the stars and everything else. And yes. you're kind of working candlelight and things like that. And you see, you know, some of the greatest ideologues came out of that era where they could yes. really think through things. So I love that you said yes. that, that, that we need yes. to do that. Yeah, That's a big, a big star for me where it's, you know, we're, 
I need to make sure that my kids are getting exposed to just shutting down and, and, and myself included. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's hard to do these days. Right. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I've, I've, uh, discovered cycling over the last couple of years and it's been, it's been one of the most heavenly things for me personally, because sometimes I'll go alone and just think other times I'll be in a group and we'll, we'll talk, but it's always outside and you're, you're getting a full view of, of nature and everything else yeah. that's going on. I think it was on the road by Kerouac where he talked about seeing the world from a motorcycle, which is somewhat mm. similar and just how you got to go do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful. I feel like I've, <laughs> this is like, I could, I could talk all day. I appreciate you being on here and, and I know that people are, are really learning from this. I wanted to just touch on a, a last thing with, um, what you talked about as far as the, the people who are driven either by others, uh, you know, to resentment or being resentful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the term, uh, vehicle of emancipation? No. Okay. So uh, there was a, a therapist that I actually went to when I was uh, right around uh, 19, 21 age, mm -hmm. um, Craig Berthold. And I think that must be a phrase that he would use called a vehicle mm -hmm. of emancipation. And mm -hmm. essentially the way he phrased it, and I may not get this right, was people will be captive and maybe resentful, as you said. And so then they'll find this outlet that is completely unhealthy but it's basically mm -hmm. them saying, I need freedom. And so I'm going to go do this. Yeah. And, you know, his his example that he used was people that have uh, marital affairs, how that yep. or people that go and buy the Corvette in a midlife crisis, which is no yep. bad. But that, those were examples he used. Yep. So I'm wondering if you could touch on that for just a second. Oh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. So, you know, that it's like, yeah, it's the affair, it's porn, it's uh, going and spending money that your spouse doesn't want you to spend. It's, you know, there's a, there's a, people look for these things often as a way to take the pressure off that they feel within that constriction. And, um, and what I think is really particularly bad about that is that you, many of us find a way to take the pressure off to ease some of the anxiety out of the situation, but therefore to not change whatever's happening that's creating the constriction and the unhealthy constriction in the first place. So, for example, somebody might feel frustrated with their child or what's going on in their parent-child dynamic. And then they call a friend, complain about their child, get some validation from their friend that the child's rotten and they're doing a good job as a parent. And, <laughs> and then it allows them to like sort of, you know, feel some of the pressure gets taken off, but they don't deal with what's going on and what do I need to change about myself or what do I need to handle differently for the sake of my child? You know, it's just one example of it, but the, they, they keep the system where it is. And as human beings, we're very... We like to do that. We like to not take responsibility for ourselves. So, you know, when you feel resentment, there's two sources of it. Mm. It could be that I'm letting myself being ta be taken advantage of, that I really am in a position where something is unfair, it's genuinely working against me, and I've been afraid to stand up to it. And so I've got to grow up and stand up and deal with the unfairness of my situation so that I'm not resentful. 
The other possibility is I keep choosing the same miserable reality, but I blame everybody else for it. And I don't really want to take responsibility or do things differently. I don't want to grow up and handle my choices and my life and really sort out what I want. I, I want to do what I'm doing and hide behind a, those choices from a frame of victimhood. So either way, when we take deeper responsibility and confront our resentments, it means we're more exposed even to ourselves. We are being more deliberate in our choosing, but it's uncomfortable because yeah. it inherently takes you out of the validation frame, the safety of validation and is more self-defining, but it's uncomfortable. So we tend to resist it and stay in the patterns that are familiar to us, but often suck all the happiness out of our lives and out of our relationships. Oh, that's so good. So, I mean, essentially, if I can word this, how I'm thinking in my head, it, it goes back to what you said about um, who do we want, who do I want to be? And it, it's almost that needs to supersede the feelings of discomfort that you're having by being in that situation or, or getting yourself out like, Oh, this is going to be really painful to, you know, not eat what I've been eating or to go out and exercise. But that has to, the, the vision for who you want to be has to somehow overcome the pain. Okay. That's right. It's always, and that's always how I teach it. The feelings come second, you know, the behaviors first and, if you're going to change something in a meaningful way, you're going to get more anxious. You're going to be more uncertain, but it's an investment in your life to tolerate that uncertainty and that discomfort and later will enjoy greater peace because of that courageous decision. But, you know, that's the way, that's what life expects um, of us. I love that. I love that. Just, I, I feel like I'm learning so much. This is, uh, I know that a lot of people will, will learn from this, but selfishly, I'm just really enjoying this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Right. Uh, sure. let's, let's move on to a, a question that correlates with, you know, the discussion we've already been having where, uh, culturally we have an idea that by being righteous or, or a good guy or a good gal, we will prosper mm-hmm. as a people or individuals. So how do we define Mm -hmm. being prosperous in a meaningful way? Mm -hmm. Well, I tend to think of, I mean, I think in our sort of Western um, American mindset, that's always about money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, we're pretty, you know, even, even in the sixties, if you ask people what a successful life was, it was not nearly as focused on wealth as if you ask youth today, what it means to be successful. It's like, 90% 90% focus, uh, sorry, I just dropped my earphone. Uh, the 90% of those kids are focused very much on wealth as a measure of, of success, which is such a narrow, narrow part of being human. I mean, because first of all, happiness does not correlate with wealth after you get out of the poverty level. I think we, we all know that, but none of us really nobody believe believes that. it. <laughs> <laughs> no one believes it. And one thing it's that is, I think is in fact true is if you are creating that wealth and you are, are basically um, achieving new realities, creating new possibilities, therefore becoming wealthier, that's a little different because that's about, there is this process of a sense of succeeding or achieving or doing something that's 
a part of the pleasure of that greater influx of, of, uh, of income. But probably if people look back and think about, you know, my actual sense of self and how happy I was, I bet you people probably could see like, even when I was making less, I was still pretty happy, you know, if, if I was, or I was similarly happy, uh, whatever I was doing. But yeah, nobody believes it. <laughs> right. I, I, I <laughs> there was that uh, Harvard study over like 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was not quite that long. It, it was people born in the 30s that were at Harvard in 47. Um, and they are now in their 90s. But but yeah, they have been tracking that data since 1947. And what was like the take home from that? Well, the take home was definitely that the quality of your relationships was... Uh, a great predictor in your happiness level and your life satisfaction. It was also an important predictor for your health. So your, you know, your, um, your, the quality of your relationships was a better predictor. You know, the quality of your relationships at age 45, for example, was a much better predictor of the, your health at 80 than your cortisol levels or your, you know, your um, cardiovascular health at 45 as a predictor of 80. So, you know, it's a big deal, the quality of our relationships. And, you know, I grew up without much money. I think I have had a lot. I remember moving into this suburb that I live in outside of Chicago. We bought the smallest place here because my oldest child has autism. And so we needed to get into a school community that could um, g- give him the the services that he needed. And so we bought the smallest house. And so I felt like an imposter, like, you know, I'm the poor kid that doesn't deserve right. to live here. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, it didn't take long. I actually grew up even cleaning houses with my mom. We would clean wealthy people's houses. So I, I definitely had this sort of sense that this, these were the happy people. They're living the good life. They live on the lake. They have people clean their house and, and then there's me. So, you know, didn't take long after I opened my practice here and started seeing people from the community who had impeccable resumes, had made all kinds of money. And so many were absolutely miserable. But first of all, because they were in this pursuit of validation, even though they'd accomplished all kinds of things, it still wasn't solving it. They were still going on to the next thing because they were trying to solve something in a form that it would never solve it. Yes. And then I would also see these people, it doesn't matter how big your house is or whatever degrees you have. If you don't get along with your spouse and there is that much misery right at home, you know, the really wealthy people are the people that have learned how to really be in peaceful relationships. They're the deeply fortunate ones. And, you know, I'm grateful for that sort of, lived experience for me to know how absolutely true that is to kind of kill some of my, that fascination I had as a kid with the idea of wealth. That, that's such a good, uh, I love in stand up comedy where uh, they'll tell a joke at the beginning of their bit and then they'll go back and kind of almost make it an inside joke later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that you just did that with the borrowed framework where uh-huh. we you go back to that beginning discussion about how we have this measuring stick of kind of who we think we need to be, yeah. which you're cleaning homes. You see these yeah. wealthy people. And it's like, oh, that's a great measuring stick. I would like that. And then full circle, you're you're in a situation where you're able to kind of see behind the curtain. Yes. And it's it's like, okay, well, 
that's not the now that is now not the framework that I'm desiring. Did, did I read listen yes. to that correctly? Yeah, okay. exactly. that's exactly right. It's maturing into a, 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 yes, exactly. Challenging the frames that you inherited or the meanings that you made, and with greater wisdom, being able to think about what actually creates the good life, and what actually creates a life that um, is prosperous. So by prosperous, I would tend to think of that not in terms of wealth, although wealth is certainly can, is a beneficial and good part of life is to be able to create the ability to sustain your reality and, and to be able to provide for the people who need from you. So there's certainly value in that. But I think that I would tend to think of prosperous in terms more of creativity. What do we do with the gifts that were offered? And by gifts, I mean our cognitive abilities, our, our opportunities, but, you know, Love even that. just just like what are we doing out of the raw material that we've been given in this chance to live on this life? And I think the really happy people have a strong sense that they have they make a meaningful difference within their sphere. And it doesn't matter really the size of that sphere as much as it matters that, you know, you make a difference. The person, the nurse that's comforting somebody in their suffering okay like you know you're making a difference and yes. it, it, it matters to you to make a difference in that way or a politician who's making very wise decisions that benefit a whole community that that in either case that you know you're taking what your gifts are and you're creating something better with it those are the people that have high life satisfaction oh, that's so good and i mean i for a corollary, I think that, you know, I got to put in a plug for Viktor Frankl, uh, Man, yeah, yeah. Man's Search for Meaning, because that's such a, a good kind of case study. Yeah. The people yeah. that really identified with being able to be helpful and, and, and do meaningful things. I think he called that's it lo right. logotherapy. Was that what his thing? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, I just love what I'm learning from you today and, and about, you know, being prosperous in a meaningful way, because that that just reinforces that we all of us know that you know money can't buy happiness but yet we still just chase it like crazy yeah and identify exactly. that as being a a, a prosperous thing well, and i think especially this is true for men because masculinity is so often something that you have to prove where femininity is just more of a given and so and the way that i think our culture asks men to prove their masculinity is through a kind of invulnerability and a kind of conquering of their environment. And so the other challenging thing about that is that it's very easy to measure, quote unquote, people by this idea of wealth. How big is their house? What kind of car do they drive? What kind of clothes do they wear? So it's a very, how to say, it's very seductive of an idea because it it's a way of trying to manage our anxieties around our sense of self is to demonstrate I am sufficient because I have achieved this kind of wealth or I have these kinds of freedoms and you know women have their own version of and I'm not saying wealth is that women are invulnerable to that but we have often gendered ideals around how we're supposed to prove that we're sufficient for women has a lot to do with appearance and what relationships and who they know and who they're in connection with men. It's more around achievement, but it can really, you know, talk about a borrowed frame. It can really become the frame in an, in a non self-reflective way and be such a narrow definition that you feel insufficient and, 
that's not a fair or right way to make sense of your life. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds to me like as men in particular, we maybe need we maybe need to sit down and come up with a little bit different measuring stick than, uh, you know, like you said, the size of a home or how much money you're making or things like that. What would exactly. be a couple of things you would put on a more appropriate measuring stick for men? Well, what kind? How about like you know, if you're being introspective? Of, sure, sure. I mean, I do think that introspective. You know, am I am I using my gifts in a meaningful way to make a meaningful difference for those that I have a responsibility to? Okay, so that's that's a much different question than how what's the dollar sign? There's a lot of people that make a lot of money, but they absolutely do not fulfill their responsibility to their children or to their partner. And so am I, am I relating to my gifts in a way that I'm um, fulfilling my responsibility both to myself, to my own self-development and to the people I have a responsibility to? I think that's one important measure, whatever that domain is. Um, how, what, this is very much linked, but what kind of a partner and parent am I? And do I conduct my life in a respect worthy manner, wherever it is that I'm operating, whatever it is that I'm doing? Um, because it's, it's, again, it's taking it out of the external judgment, what does somebody else think about it and into the internal, the internal reference point. Um, you know, I remember when I when I, I first got my PhD, my husband had been laid off just a couple, like a month before I finished my PhD. No, I guess it was a few months before, but whatever. So we both went on the job market and uh, I was offered a job to be, to be in a professor position. It was really an ideal job in many respects. And it's unusual to be offered a job just coming out of a PhD program, but it just fit perfectly with the kind of work I'd been doing. And I'm trying to, yeah, I got to stay succinct in my story here in just a minute. So basically, I, I, I basically, my husband was offered another job and I ended up turning that job down. And, um, you know, that certainly did not fit the validation that my professors thought I was crazy for turning that job down. Uh, there were people who thought that was a bad idea, but it really was in line with what I wanted and what I wanted to create because I wanted to be home. I just had a second child. I had my oldest child had special needs. It fit with what I wanted. I would then sometimes go to my husband's work parties and I would feel like in the noise of a party, if people didn't know anything about me, that some of these men in particular, to be honest, would sort of condescend to me. Like I was the mother who was at home. So my, my, <laughs> my, my wife calls it mansplaining. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they were just seeing me like, you know, I'm not going around saying I've got a PhD. Okay. Like I, I wasn't telling anybody things like that. I am just, you know, there as John's wife and whatever, but you know, it's, you have to sort of tolerate that people see my life. They may see me as making choices that are not impressive. No, th nobody was impressed at that time. You know, I mean, I'm a mother in the throes of parenting a challenging child and, you know, you know, with limited income because just my husband was working at the time. So, but my point in saying all that was it really was pushing me on this issue of I am defining my life and living it in the way that I want, that I feel good about, that I am comfortable with. I will at some point pursue other aspects of who I am. But right now, this is what I want. 
I don't want to turn this job of parenting over to somebody else. And so that internal locus of control, that internal reference was the antidote to any condescension or misunderstanding or whatever that I might have experienced outside by people who didn't know me, that I knew that I was doing what I wanted to do, that I was living the life that I felt good about. And that's just really, really important because if I had taken that job because I, I wanted the validation of it, but it was actually incongruent with what I believed was better or the more right choice, that is, even though it looks so good, it is a self-betrayal. And it's worshiping the God of validation as opposed to a more, who do I want to be? And what life do I want to live? What legacy do I want? And, And if we don't take that seriously, we will always be anxious. We will always be resentful. We won't really have peace of mind. I love this. I I think that this is, I mean, if I could put this in like a gift to the world type thing and just hand that out to people, I think it's so good. And as you're going through that whole story and my mind is just going, I'm I'm thinking of uh, Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Yeah, I I know the author, but I don't know that book. So the, there's a young architect, uh, Howard Rourke, that designs modern buildings and he refuses to compromise with the architectural establishment in mm-hmm. kind of the, the arc of the book, I'm going to ruin it for people, but the arc of the story is where he designs this complex and this kind of corporate entity tries to, they make a few changes to make it more like streamlined, maybe more cost effective. Mm-hmm. And he, he goes and bombs the building mm. because he is unwilling to compromise from his vision. Yeah. And you know, right or wrong, I'm not saying anybody should yeah. bomb buildings or anything. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a fictional yeah. story, but it was. Sure. I love that aspect of of kind of having that that idea of self that it's you stay you don't compromise on those things that are so important. Right. And then I like how you really took the inner locus of control back in that situation where you know you're the, the kind of the mansplaining or the condescend you know from yeah. the the men where it's like a. I don't have to explain my myself to you, right? right. Which exactly. uh, I think it goes a lot into. There's a lot of stories about knowing who we are when we're, uh, right? For lack of when we're being word. misjudged, misunderstood. Yeah, misjudged, or or be, people are trying to persuade us to do something, right. and it's. I think it goes back to if we know who we are or or what we want to be. Yes. Which I, I think with companies and with individuals, I think that's why it's so important to have some sort of vision statement or vision yes. or purpose that you should have for your life. And so that's a, yes. that's a good plug to, to reevaluate that. Yes. I, we yeah. have learned so much today. I love it. Do you mind if I ask you just uh, you know one more question that sure. we can talk about for a few minutes sure. and then, then we can um, let you go? So, so much appreciate your time. Um, sure. I'm going to do a little dealer's choice here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dealer's mm-hmm. choice. Um, got, uh, uh, three questions here and I'll just let you pick the one you want. Is, okay, it, sure. is it possible to be successful and balanced in life or what things do you think men should be saying no more to? So what should we say no mm-hmm. more? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, the, the last one is why is sexual intimacy important to men and how can they utilize sexual intimacy to enhance their relationships with their spouse? Okay. I'll give 
the first two, like a one sentence answer, and then I'll focus on the third one quickly. So give me the which, first one again. Which, the, um, okay. Is it possible to be both successful and balanced in life? Okay. So what I would say to that is balance is success. Uh, so successful is to find a meaningful balance. And I don't mean it's the same for everybody of how am I true to myself and others, true to my development and true to my relationships. And if it's too distorted, it will in one direction or another, it will not be successful. So I would just say you have to think about what you mean by success. You but I, I, I think you, if you compromise, success. yeah, if you compromise your relationships at the, at the altar of your pursuits, you will suffer. If you saw, if you, if you, um, sacrifice your development and your pursuits at the, you know, to your relationships, if you make your relationships more important than your own development, you will also suffer. So you, it is finding a way to be true to that tension that you develop and grow and create, but you also are keep your, the ecosystem of your support, your support system healthy. And, and that includes your relationship to yourself outside of those pursuits. So anyway, you, you must find a meaningful balance that is in line with your ideals if you're going to be successful. I love that. That's, that's a, a, a helping with the definition that we're coming up with for balance. Yeah. So thank you very yeah. much. Good. Then the, the second short one, uh, what things do you think? What do you say no to? Yeah, yeah, what do you say no to? Uh, say no to the stuff that you know is about keeping people thinking you're so great or trying to prove your yourself to everyone else, especially when it's counter to your own honest view of what matters, who you should be, what you should be putting your time towards. So say no to external validation, particularly when it's at the cost of your own integrity or your own higher ideals. It goes back to the, you know, be true to who you are Yes. and figure out what the best version of you is going to be, which is always going to change, but hopefully in progressive yes. way. Yes. And then the, the last one that we can talk about for a few minutes, why is uh, sexual intimacy important to men and how can they utilize intimacy to enhance their relationships with their spouses? And, and, Dr. Finlayson Fife is an expert in this, uh, this genre, uh, you know, that my wife and I've wanted to go to one of her, um, retreats for quite some time. And I, I think we will, and I'll put a little bit more information out, th out there as mm -hmm. far as her website and everything. Cause excellent opportunities out there to, to better relationships, which my wife mm -hmm. and I are always looking to do that in our lives. Cause we tell our kids all the time that her, our relationship with each other is the most important for us in this planet. Yes. We love you guys, but we're going to, we're going to spend time with each other because this is important. Yes, definitely. So I mean, why is it important to men? How can they do it? Well, I mean, I would say here's sort of just my fast and we could spend a whole hour on this question, but I would say that, um, generally speaking, men are, first of all, I think the language of the body is our mother tongue. And so that is to say we express and receive love through the body before there's any verbal ability when we're babies. Yes. You know, that's how you know you're secure. That's how you know you matter. And so that embodied expression of love is foundational to us. I think that women get more socialized out of comfort in their own skin than men do. And I'm not 
saying that um, I know that's a broad brushstroke, but that's generally true. Women are taught more that their bodies are more about a kind of uh, what's the word ornamental ideal that they're sort of to be looked at, but it often puts women in a kind of compromised relationship with their body as well as a kind of anxiety about whether or not it's okay to be sexual, because if I'm sexual or desirous, does that make me selfish or hedonistic or somehow the harlot, you know, the, the less ideal version of femininity. Mm. And so women are often have learned how to not be as comfortable expressing love and affection through their embodiment. I think men are also socialized that they aren't, that, that it's anti-masculine to express tenderness, to talk about vulnerability, to express uncertainty and sexuality because it's so much more linked to masculinity, but, you know, in the way that we've culturally made sense of masculinity, if this is an acceptable way to express more tenderness, more vulnerability, more soul, and um, and so I think it's a more comfortable language and it's a language that sort of gets the validation in the culture for being masculine and and to, to love through it. Um, I think that first of all, as a woman married to a good man, I love this part of masculinity. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a great thing, the kind of, expression of kindness and goodness and love that can come through sexuality and the way that it can deeply bless um, a partner's life. And so I'm, I think it's, we pathologize it too much. I think often for men that this, and there obviously are men who are exploitative with their sexuality and take advantage um, of other people through it or use it to dominate. Um, but that often that reality masks how many men there are that really do want to love through their sexuality, want to offer nurturance and sustenance and care through that, uh, through that mode of expression and, um, how much that is a fundamental to a really thriving marriage. Um, so I think, you know, how you do it better again, I could spend a lot of time on this, but I, again, it comes back to, Sometimes many of us are sexual or not sexual for that matter to pursue validation, hmm. to feel like we're man enough, female enough, whatever it is. Sometimes people withhold sexuality as a way to have control, to feel dominant. Um, you know, sometimes people demand sexuality as a way to feel in control. So there's a lot of dark ways to be in relationship to our sexuality or the way we're in our relationships is probably going to get expressed through our sexuality. The more integrity of self that we have. That's really, really profound yes. right there. Yes. So when, I, when I'm looking at people's problematic sexual behavior, I'm often asking, who is this person outside of sex? Because it's going to also show you the way that they are relating to their sexuality and to others with it. But so the locus, you know, I am often giving people exercises to be more deliberate and thoughtful about how they're being sexual. How are you touching your spouse? What meaning are you communicating in the way that you touch your spouse? Because it is a language and whether or not you want it to be one, a lot is getting communicated in the way that you're together. And often those are messages that people can't handle or don't like. And that's why the sex 
breaks down in marriage. So getting more deliberate about how am I, am I going to be, am I trying to be sexual to get the evidence that my wife desires me? And that's what's making me initiate is I want the sexual validation because that's more needy frame. That's a needy frame and it's not sexy. It's not attractive. Or do I approach her because I, I value her. I genuinely love her. I choose her. I like her. Even if she has some sexual discomfort, I'm not apologetic for the fact of my desiring of her because it's not about proving that I'm okay. It's about an acknowledgement and expression that I value her and love her. And I value and love her outside of the sexual realm. I value and love her as the whole person that she is. And this is one important way of acknowledging that. So there's, how to say it? So the message that you're communicating through your sexuality is one you can stand behind unapologetically that you can use that as a way to really bless your life and the life of your partner. I love that. There's so much to take on, take on. And I, and I know that you could talk for that. You're an expert in this. I mean, you uh, are, are world renowned. And so I would highly recommend that the people listening, uh, check your stuff out, Dr. Uh, Finlayson Fife. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I'd like my wife and I've talked to for, the last couple of years about doing, uh, going to some sort of retreat or, or going to things. And we actually had, uh, signed up for one. And then for some reason, a bad excuse, but, uh, we, we mm -hmm. should have gone and, and didn't make it. So mm -hmm. something we, yeah. we all do. And regardless of how good we think our marriage or intimacy is, we can always get better. And yeah. so excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on, um, thank you, and letting us interview you at, this is enlightening and, and, you know, as you, as anybody gets on the about page for, or for Tim or me or, or John, you can see that the reason, the reasons why we do are doing the Stillyard Academy are different, but this just is so fulfilling that hopefully we can help one person or, or many people from this interview today and, and impact lives so that people can forge success through balance. So thank you so much for being on with me. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.